Well, as we continue to work through the book of James, we're going to come to points where it is very important to remember the big picture. For instance, today we need to keep in mind that James is not a book about how to be saved or what is required in order to go to heaven or anything like that. We're not studying the gospel according to James. James is simply not a book about what we believe. What is it then? James is a book of practical, challenging, and helpful instructions for followers of Jesus who really want to follow him. Or as I bluntly put it in the series title, James is for those who really ought to put up or shut up, right? That's, that's kind of where we are in Christianity today, I think, sometimes. We need to just put up or shut up. Remember from the beginning that James established himself as a bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's writing to others who have committed to serving and following Christ as well. He is writing to people who have already accepted the Lord as their Savior. And who've been baptized to show that they're committed to him. They have a fervent intention to follow him for the rest of their lives. That's the original audience of James. So we need to understand that. It's a letter to the Jerusalem church, which had mostly scattered and had dispersed to near and distant lands due to the persecution that had happened there in the mid-first century, starting with the execution of Stephen, who was one of their brightest leaders. This letter is written to those who were who were putting their lives on the line for Christ. They were in danger. They were in a culture where they could be killed for claiming his name. That's why James is all about the doing that comes after the believing. He knows they already believe. Even enough to endure such persecution without wavering. And so virtually every single verse of James is pointed at the same goal. To show true Christ followers a very practical picture of what it really means to follow Christ. Understand the purpose and audience of James is, is going to be very important as we interpret today's text. In verse 27 of chapter 1, James basically summarizes his entire message with these words. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now there is a danger that we need to watch out for in this verse. As I mentioned, James is writing to those who have already received Christ as Savior by grace through faith. James is writing to those who, as 1 Corinthians 5, 17 puts it, are a completely new creation. Or as Jesus put it, are born again, radically changed from the inside out. And so at the point that you would apply this verse... God has already forgiven and cleansed you from all unrighteousness by grace through your faith in what Jesus did on the cross. The point is that the definition of religion that James gives us assumes that you are already saved. If you're not, I have some other verses of scripture for you that, that you'll hear more in another sermon. John 3.16 is a good one, especially if you read the preceding verses about being born again. That is radically changed from the inside out. Through a committed kind of faith in Jesus. But why is it so important to understand that James is writing to those who are already true Christians? Because if we don't understand that the audience <clears throat> is already presumed to be saved, this verse can appear to teach what virtually every false religion teaches. That unforgiven people can earn favor from God by doing enough good in the world. 
or that by doing enough good, you will be able to tip those eternity scales in your favor. But the rest of the New Testament is so very clear that no one can acquire a ticket to heaven through good behavior. James is a book and a desperately needed one about what should happen after salvation. I will even say that James is a book about what must happen and what will happen after salvation. And that if these things do not happen in a person's life, then there cannot have been true salvation for that person in the first place. We'll talk more about that next time when we get into the partnership of faith and works. But for now, let me just be clear that James preaches a religion of results. So did his earthly brother, Jesus. These results are not the starting point of true religion. And yet if there are no results, then the religion in question is simply not true. True religion is found in a relationship with Christ. And yet James' point is that if there are no results, there must have been no relationship. As is so often the case in this book, James is only echoing many of the teachings of Christ, whose challenge to his followers was anything but easy. Where did we get the idea that a person can become a Christian and make no sacrifices? Exercise no devotion. Experience no real changes. We sure didn't get it from Jesus. Have we forgotten that salvation involves the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit? Can a person have God come to live in their heart and not change? James and Jesus agree there is no way that can happen. Now let's look at today's text in which James claims to define the marks of true religion. First, we can see that the only worthwhile religion is the one God accepts. First part of verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. So the criteria for whether a religion is worthy is not whatever philosophers, scholars, historians, or even ordinary people think. Did you know a billion people can be dead wrong? It doesn't even matter what the majority think. It doesn't matter what Oprah thinks or, or Chopra. Okay. It doesn't matter what I think or what you think. The only way a religion can be measured as good, bad, true, or false is by what the one true God has declared. The God of creation either accepts a religion as pure and faultless or he rejects it as unworthy and untrue. You see, God, God, what is God? God is either the God of the Bible, a consistent God who has revealed himself through creation and scripture since the beginning of humanity. Or perhaps you think he's the God named Allah, who Muhammad chose to promote, or, or maybe you think he's one of thousands of Hindu gods or the Buddha was right and there really is no particular entity who is God or perhaps we just can't know or some other obscure religion is right but regardless of the hypothetical question of who is God everyone should agree that the only one who would have the authority to decide what is worthy religion is that person who is the real God of course if there is no God then all religion is irrelevant 
obviously we in this church believe in the God of the Bible. Yahweh, the creator of all, the one who took on flesh and died on the cross before rising on the third day, ascending into heaven until he returns to make all things new. Hallelujah. Amen. But right now my point is that the only acceptable religion must be that which the true God accepts. That seems obvious, right? The true God gets to decide what is acceptable religion. And yet we live in a time when people actually try to tell God, whomever he might be, the criteria by which he should judge or should uh, uh, the people of his creation. Or try to tell God what he should or should not accept. That's exactly what the entire world is trying to do right now. There's a word for that, idolatry. And the idolatry of today is as empty and foolish as the idolatry of golden statues. When it comes to our newer forms of idolatry, it's idolatry. It seems that many would like the basis for acceptable religion to be sincerity. Have you noticed this? They would prefer that a verse like the one from our text today would say, God accepts a religion as long as it's sincere. Twisted modern concepts of justice basically mean that God should take whatever he can get and be happy with it. They're, all, they're not only saying, who are Christians to say that others are wrong? What they really mean is, who is God to say? Popular thinking is that any God worth worshiping is a God who will accept anything and everything as long as it's sincere. There's just one problem with that. The problem is that God is the I am, not the whoever I think he should be. Newsflash, you don't get to tell Yahweh how he should see the world. And Yahweh, God, has gone to great lengths to reveal to us what is acceptable and what is not. He has done this mostly through his revelation to mankind called the Bible. The entire Old Testament makes it clear how God feels about other religions. All of the laws that he gave the Israelites, our spiritual ancestors, all of their laws were designed to make sure they were a separate and distinct people set apart to worship and serve the one true God, creator of the universe. All of the biblical laws were designed to keep his people sanctified from the many other idolatrous religions. God said these other religions were detestable in his sight. He said they were false, fake, man-made, empty and abomination to his name. In other words, they were not acceptable to him. The Hebrew faith had been revealed to the people by God, handed down by prophets. Anything other than this supernaturally revealed religion was called idolatry in scripture. And God clearly took great offense at all of it. And the, you know, the 10, the big 10, the 10 commandments, the first three of the Ten Commandments make the exclusivity of the one true God so clear. <clears throat> and when Jesus was asked about the greatest commander, his answer came as a quote from the Hebrew Shema, uh, a 4,000-year-old command to worship and serve God alone and to put him first in your life above all else. See, God has been actually defining, narrowly defining true religion since Adam and Eve. It, you know, James really just kind of sums it all up. It, it, it's been all throughout Scripture. Now, James, you know, in the latter days says, here's what it all comes down to. This is what true religion is. This is what would be acceptable to God based on what he has revealed. 
God is the only one who has the right to say what is acceptable. The point here is that any discussion of true religion must start with what God has defined as true religion. Only the real God gets to decide what is acceptable. Now, look back at our text. <clears throat> James chapter 1, verse 27. Is it up there? Good. Notice that this inspired scripture tells us that the religion which God accepts is both pure and faultless. Now, if you look at the following phrases in the verse, in the verse, uh, pure seems to refer to good works done from pure motives, while faultless points to God's definition of morality. In other words, if the religious practice in question is going to be considered acceptable by God, it's going to do good in the world and it's going to avoid sinful behavior. This definition is really quite beautiful in its simplicity. To be specific, acceptable, pure, and faultless religion, according to God, is defined by two things. One, looking after the needy in their distress. And two, keeping oneself from being polluted by the world. Acceptable religion is pure, or we might say real enough, to look after orphans and widows, even when there's no personal gain in doing so. An acceptable religion is faultless or literally undefiled because it does not allow itself to be polluted by the world. This means that if our religion is polluted by the world or if it does not care for those in distress, then it is no longer acceptable to God. James is talking about results. Where's the beef? Remember that? Where's my 1980s crowd? Remember those Wendy's commercials and the old, old, old lady, uh, should I say that, old lady, the, the older lady, the elderly lady? I don't know, she's about 98, maybe I can say it. That lady, remember saying that? Where's the beef? I think we need to say that about sometimes about the church today, about our own lives sometimes. Where's the beef? Is there any proof in the pudding? Is there any fruit on the tree? Are there any grapes on the vine, any wheat in the field? Has the wheat been choked out by weeds? Is there any return on God's investment or was his investment simply buried in the ground? Does any of this sound familiar? Read the parables of Christ. Most of them are about results. Jesus indicated we can know true believers by their actions. Paul spoke of results as fruits of the Spirit. The Apostle John taught the same twofold result as James, saying in 1 John 3.10, This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not, one, do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not, two, love his brother. James, the brother of Christ, and John the Apostle tell us about the same two types of religious results. True religion, true Christianity. That which is pleasing and acceptable to God will produce results in two major areas of our lives. Loving actions and moral choices. Do what is right and love other people. Take care of widows and orphans and keep away from immorality. Let me try to pull this down, pull this down even further. Putting it as simply as possible. True religion will profoundly impact what we do and what we don't do. Doesn't get much simpler than that, does it? That's really what it comes down to. What we do and what we don't do. Oh, our religion is about doing? Exactly. Exactly. It's about doing. 
Let's get back to the text. Looking at this now in terms of these two areas of outline. First of all, pure and faultless religion affects what we do. <clears throat> Again, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Generally speaking, James is talking about what our religion leads us to actually do. Where are we taking action? How are we changing the world? What are we doing that is helping others in need? I think this area of doing is where many long-time Christians fall short. Some of us are pretty good at not doing the things we're not supposed to do. You know, staying on the straight and narrow. Or at least we think we're good at it. But maybe we're not as good at going out and doing the things we're called to do. And that leaves us very mediocre in our walk with Christ. Christianity does not reaching out in ministry to others becomes very, very stagnant. And stagnant things rot. Don't think we're immune. We're not old enough to be rotten yet, but give it a few years. We'll get there. If we're not doing the things we're called to do. Now, why does James single out orphans and widows here? It seems that these particular examples of often needy people were on his heart at the time. In fact, there's a big problem with orphans and widows in first century Palestine, especially <clears throat> among these persecuted and fleeing Jewish Christians. Many of these new Christians had been ostracized from their Jewish communities and extended families. Their support system had been canceled. Widows who had become Christians might not have been able to rely on the otherwise amazing safety net that had been laid out in scripture for them. In those days, women were basically not given the opportunity to provide for themselves, unfortunately. So they were very, very dependent. And if they lost their husband, they could literally go hungry or potentially even have no place to live. There was no life insurance or pension or savings account available. And if you remember from earlier in this study, many of them had been forced to leave their homes behind. They were destitute. Widows today often have unmet needs as well. What are you doing for those widows you know who may be lonely or need physical help around the house? They probably aren't going to come to you. You'll need to go to them. Odds are there's a widow or two living on your street. Do you check in on them? Do you care enough to stop and have a conversation with someone who maybe just needs to talk? What about the orphans? James says, may, James, James may have had in mind that the children whose parents had either been arrested or killed for their faith in Christ. That's, that's what was going on at the time. Think about that. What happened to the kids when mom and dad were dragged off to prison for their faith in Jesus? They seem hard to believe that religious persecution was real then. And by the way, still going on around the world. In China, people who share Christ with others are still arrested. And sometimes they disappear. That is absolutely true. What happens to their children? What happened to the children of those Christians who were arrested in the first century? Well, it simply fell on the church to take care of them. And of course, there were other reasons. Children were orphaned then. Just as there are now. Interestingly, the Greek text here uses the word fatherless. This is one of those times when you actually can find out something important by looking at the original language. James says religion that God our Father accepts is this to look after the fatherless. 
This is a bit of play on word, of a play on words. God is our father, and as our father, he's calling us to be fathers to those who don't have physical fathers present. Is this not exactly what Jesus called us to do? He called us to be his representatives on earth, his ambassadors. That would include being a father to the fatherless or a mother to the motherless. We're to be his hands and feet because needy people need more than spiritual help. They need emotional and physical help. When we are fathers and mothers to those who have none, that's when they can see that there is a heavenly father who cares enough to send his people out into the world. We're to take Jesus' presence, his light, his love to the ones who need him most. No one in this world is more needy than an orphan child. This teaching can have a whole range of applications. Some of you may be called to adopt. Let me rephrase that. Some of you are definitely called to adopt. The need is great. Foster care is another great need. Thank God for people like one of our own. Jeannie Siriani, who serves as a foster parent. We may have others that I just don't know. Others may be called to help someone else adopt. Or to sponsor children through various organizations. Let's face it, most of us should be doing more. Are you looking for ways that you can help orphans? God is not interested in comfort zone religion. All of us should be asking, what would God have me do? All of us ought to be doing something for widows and orphans. Among other things, we'll likely help some orphans one way or another when we go to Nicaragua in August. If you'll pray about that, you'll have to raise some money. About $1,400 to go each. You'd be surprised, though, if you do some letters, some people will help you out. But take note in your bulletin there that there's going to be an informational meeting about our Nicaragua mission trip after church on Sunday, March 22nd. I've been many times. I know how it works. It's a fantastic experience. And I feel, sir, we'll, among the many things we'll do, we will have some impact on, on the orphans uh, there. Second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere after Haiti. I go there, too. I know we can't do it all. And I'm not trying to tell anyone what to do, nor am I sure exactly what I'm supposed to do about orphans right now, but I need to pray about it once again. Have you given God an open invitation to ask whatever he wants to ask? How are you helping orphans right now? How pure is your religion? Is it acceptable to God? At this point, I would like to make sure you know that this church does quite a few good things in your name and with your money, multiplying your donations and sending them on to uh, worthy ministries, such as uh, the many Baptist ministries to orphans around the world. When you give here, it goes there. Make no mistake, it does. One of my friends runs the Missouri Baptist Children's Home. That's where I'm from, so that's why I know him. And I know that all of the giving of our churches and our network, uh, some of it goes there and other orphanages like that. If you give here, it goes there to many similar ministries. Having said that, we probably need to do more than send money, right? I do also need to point out that James qualifies the ministry to orphans and widows with the phrase in distress. 
This gives us a clue as to the heart of the matter. The point is that we're to help those who are in great need, whether they be orphans, widows, or otherwise. Widows and orphans are good examples of those who are often in distress. But Jesus mentioned others like the sick, the hungry, even those in prison. <clears throat> I'm going to pause and say something I wasn't going to say, but I'm going to say it. I, I don't, I'm not panicking about the coronavirus, okay? I, I, I'm not going to say a lot. But what if, what if it's that or something else? What if there is a pandemic? What are we going to do as Christians? Are we going to cower in fear or are we going to serve and help people? Maybe you might want to get that figured out in your head ahead of time. The church at Antioch became known for, for helping the sick during their day. What if we became known for that? If things go bad, whether it's that virus or something else. Worthy serving people. Pastor Tully led a team to um, serve a meal to men in recovery through the Portland Rescue Mission recently. It's going to happen, I think, about every other month. Um, so thank you for those who served, and there's an opportunity for you to serve that way. We help out the Family Resource Center here in town quite a bit, quite a few times. Disaster relief is something that we are involved in. If somebody would like to go and help with disaster relief, even with the tornadoes in Tennessee, we can probably get you plugged in through there. Um, just, just let me know of your interest, and we're open to ideas too. We've got a lot that we're that's in the cooker right now that we're getting ready to do. True followers of Christ look after those in distress, and they help provide relief to real people. That includes prayer, by the way. Don't forget about prayer, praying for people. There's a ministry there. It might include sitting down and talking to someone. Uh, it's not just the pastor that can do that. We're all called to do that kind of thing. Grieving loss with someone who's mourning, encouraging those who are depressed, spending time with the needy, simply helping somebody out. Friends, if your Christianity is void of this kind of work, then it is simply not acceptable to God. It is not acceptable. It's not pure or real. You know, it's not what it should be. James says religion is acceptable to God's religion of doing, but that's only the first of two characteristics he mentions. He also points out that the acceptable, the acceptable religion involves personal holiness. For those who follow God's religion are going to be set apart and identifiable because of their moral choices. True religion is going to set you apart and cause you to be distinct from the rest of the world because, number two, pure and faultless religion affects what we don't do. Now, I got to tell you, I grew up with so much of this that I kind of bounced off of it at some point, but it's still true. You know what I mean? I grew up in a church where maybe there was a little bit too much emphasis on this is how you be a Christian. You don't do this, you don't do that. So, you know, we don't want to go there, but I mean, let's just deal with the scripture, right? What does it actually say? It affects what we don't do. Going back to our text, James writes, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, the question for you to consider this morning, and this is one to take home with you. How polluted are you? Great question, huh? It kind of assumes there's some. How polluted are you? Other translations use the phrase undefiled. 
by the world. The original Greek is aspalon, which literally means spotless. The idea is that practicing faultless religion means you're not going to get the same crud on you that most people are getting on them. That means that you're going to stand out whether you like it or not. You're going to be different. Because my mom always said if everybody else is doing it, that's a pretty good reason not to do it. Peter makes the same point in the context of a passage reminding us that this world is not our ultimate home. From 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. But in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless blameless at peace with him make every effort to be found spotless but we generally settle for less spots don't we we do we settle for less than spotless we settle for less spots we settle for less spots than whoever we can put out there as exhibit a that's why we're so judgmental honestly keeps us from thinking about ourselves so that he may not even claim to be a follower of Christ. We find some folks who have more spots than we think we have. And we feel pretty okay about ourselves because at least we are more or less spotless, comparatively speaking. But less spots is not what God has asked of us. He's called us to be spotless. At the very least, this means that when we become aware of a spot, we should actually start working on getting rid of it. Instead of looking at everyone else and saying, yeah, but just look at how many spots they have. I do realize we're not going to be perfect in this life, but we are called to set our sights on spotless rather than less spots. James says that in order for our religion to be acceptable to God, we need to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. How do we do that? Well, it's going to start with a basic understanding about ourselves and our lives. I'm not convinced that most Christians today have this understanding. What understanding is that? We need to expect, expect to swim upstream. We need to know ahead of time that we will be making counter-cultural choices on a regular basis. Listen, you need to choose a different path before you even start walking. You need to take every step in a different direction than many or most of the people you know. And often that will include other Christians who may be in a mediocre phase or simply never grew up. Sometimes you'll need to stand alone. In fact, if you've never stood alone in your life, it's not likely that you understand what it means to keep yourself unpolluted or spotless from the world. You need to expect to be in the minority most of the time, if not the only one who's making the right choice. Some of you are thinking what I'm thinking. I wish all the teenagers were here today instead of at their retreat. But, you know, I'm sure their leaders share things like this with them regularly. But all of us need to hear this, that you shouldn't wait to make major right and wrong decisions in the moment. Most of the time, if you make your choice in the moment, you'll choose to be just like everybody else. You'll have to make choices ahead of time if you're going to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. And make no mistake, those choices absolutely will single you out for ridicule, and you can expect others to do everything in their power, everything they could possibly do to manipulate you to be more like them. You'll be surprised just how intolerant the world can be when you don't go with the flow. Spotless is far from popular, but 
it does represent the only kind of religion that's acceptable to God. <clears throat> the reality is that we all get pulled away sometimes. We all start to let a few contaminants in here and there, unfortunately. And God loves us too much to let us keep going without calling out our spots. I hope he's calling out some of you this morning. And he calls me out too, folks. I'm far from immune to the pollution of this world. God's always straightening me out. This happens regularly in my life. Lately, he's been working with me on what I say and how I say it. I've been just a little too unfiltered, I think. And uh, I've not considered the feelings of others at times. In the past, sometimes I've needed to throw away certain video games. This is specific stuff. Turn off certain television shows. It's usually a spot or two I need to work on. Whatever it is, God isn't finished with me yet. And he often calls me out on the ways I've been letting myself be polluted. And yes, even your pastor gets polluted sometimes. But the one thing I can say is that when I realize what's going on, I make changes. And that's a big part of what it means to really be a Christian, making changes. So what about you? Let me bring this down to the level of real. And this might sting a little. If you think you can listen to trashy music, read smutty books, go to immoral websites, watch filthy R-rated movies, take in hours of twisted television, and or play all the mind-numbingly violent and sexually explicit video games out there, and you think you can do those things and not be polluted by the world, you're only kidding yourself. The truth is that if you don't meticulously control what you put into your brain and your body, then you are being polluted by the world. It's time to get real with yourself. This means real choices. This usually means sacrificing your own desires. I've turned off or walked out of quite a few movies. It's got to be real. You've got to do something differently. I've thrown away a lot of them. I usually break them over my knee when I'm just throwing away a lot of video games. Real stuff. Stop eating and drinking certain things. What have you done lately to keep yourself from being polluted by the world? Listen, only God can help you know exactly where to draw those lines, and so it's hard to be very specific. I'm not even sure all those lines are always in the same place for one person or another at any given time. If we're going to be legalistic, you know, I would, I would just put a list of do's and don'ts in your bulletin, but I'll never make it that easy for you. There are some things that I believe are okay that somebody out there is going to say is totally sinful. And that's why I'd rather just let you listen to the convicting spirit of God. What is he saying? I'm not trying to tell anyone where exactly to draw those lines because it works a whole lot better if you just learn to listen to God. Let God show us when, when we're wrong on the finer details. Sometimes that's part of a growth process. You just don't see it until you grow a little bit. But listen to me. If you can't think of any specific ways that you are choosing not to go with the crowd or your own desires, specific areas where you are making real choices that are countercultural and probably against your own selfish desires, then you can rest assured that you are being polluted by the world. You will be required to make a real, to make real and sometimes sacrificial choices in order to keep yourself undefiled. 
And remember, the Bible says that when you're polluted by the world, your religion is no longer acceptable to a holy God. So there's that. The Bible also says the world we live in is desperately wicked and destined for God's wrath. Sometimes I'm like, where, when is, any, any time would make sense. <laughs> you know, I mean, that is where we're headed. There, God's wrath is coming. His rescue is coming for those who believe it. His wrath is coming for everyone and everything else. How do we know? Where to draw lines to keep ourselves unpolluted from a world that is on the way to wrath. You know, I mean, should we build a monastery for ourselves? Let's do a commune in Idaho. I would love to do that. It just doesn't quite fit with my calling or yours. No, not a monastery. That's not it. Should we just be, like, as long as I'm a notch or two better than the people... Uh, nearby, maybe that's that's a good. No, that's not it. We need to draw lines and places that will allow us not just to have less spots, but to be spots. If you know in your heart that you can't do the activity without being contaminated, you need to learn to live without doing that activity. What's the title of this series again? Does God not have the right to ask this of us? Is this level of discipleship too much for God to require? Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good would it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? But the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I'm afraid we settle for far too little. We often practice a weak and powerless religion. Sometimes we say, well, it's not, we don't believe in religion. It's not a religion, it's a relationship. I've said that myself, but it is a religion. Come on. But, but is it weak and powerless or pure and undefined? I think it's often weak and powerless. A religion that does not stand out as anything different. And according to James, this religion is not acceptable to a holy God. What's the logical conclusion? Well, if your salvation doesn't result in something real, maybe it isn't real. If your religion shows no real results, perhaps it's not true religion. Perhaps you should make sure you have sincerely asked Jesus to save you. Have you ever put your trust in Christ in a life-changing way, asking him to come in and, and forgive you and change you from the inside out? Have you nailed that decision down by obeying his call for you to be baptized, you know, in front of everybody? If not, there's no way you're going to be able to practice acceptable religion before God. But if your salvation is sure, then what happens when you decide to give it your best and you still don't measure up? Well, grace happens. Jesus happens. The cross happens. Thank God for the fact that Jesus paid the price for our sin. Amen? Amen. And yet, as the Apostle Paul made clear, we must never use grace as a license to sin. But nobody would ever do that, right? 
Folks, I'm afraid that's precisely what we do, what we've done in the modern church. And, and I'm just going to be unpolitical. It's not just the Catholics. We all do it. We all do it. We've used grace as a license for mediocrity at best. And Jesus himself told us God flat out wants to spit, spit lukewarm people out of his mouth. He's disgusted by it. Mediocre religion is simply not acceptable. Instead, grace should motivate us to become more and more like Jesus out of love and appreciation and heartfelt devotion. And because we're being changed on the inside, grace sets us apart as chosen children of God who want to live in a way that's pleasing to him, knowing he cares for us and that his way of life is ultimately better anyway. It's more meaningful, it's more fulfilling. We're talking about results here today. The results of pure and faultless religion, the results of receiving grace, the results of being saved by faith in Jesus Christ, the results of walking daily with him. Religion that's acceptable to God has two major areas of results. What we do to help others, and what we don't do in order to stay unpolluted. You know, it seems like I wind up saying this one way or another just about every Sunday in this series, but I must say again that these challenges are not doable in your own strength. The power to do more for God, the ability to keep yourself unpolluted, must flow out of a relationship with Christ that is vibrant and current. So what does a relationship with Jesus have to do with the exercise of hearing a sermon? Well, perhaps the biggest part of any relationship with Christ is listening to him when he speaks. The Bible says one way God has chosen to speak is through the foolishness of preaching. The event known as ecclesia, which means gathering, and is translated as church. We need to come together and listen to the spoken word week after week. And God has called people like me to be faithful in preaching that message to his church. A vibrant relationship with Christ means you hear when he speaks and you respond to what is being said. I pray that God has spoken to someone here today. And I hope that you'll do whatever he is calling you to do. I'm just going to spend a few moments in prayer. If you would bow with me, just um, close your eyes to minimize the distractions and just just think for a minute. Just, just listen for a minute. What has God said? Maybe you're that person who you, you try and it's just not there. The power's not there. Not, not, the, not the power to be perfect or never make a mistake, but the power to change, to be changed. Maybe you have to be honest. You just, you just kind of always thought you were a Christian, but you've never really had a moment like what the Bible talks about where you just were like, a whole new person where everything started to change and didn't stop. Maybe you need to make sure that you really put your faith and your trust in Jesus today. You can do that on your own. You don't need me. I don't have to hold your hand. He is so ready to come into your heart and your life. All you have to do is in your heart right now, just say, yes, I surrender. I need Jesus. Come into my life. I believe in you. I need you. Save me from my sin. I need help. I believe it. I believe crying out to Jesus, things like what we see in the criminal on the cross, that, that that's what it takes. The rest of all of the things we can discuss about what salvation means, it happens because he comes into your life and starts changing you. Would you just today, would it, could it be today when you're born again, as the Bible says? 
When you just say, yes, come in, I need you. I'm turning to Christ today. I dedicate my life to you today. Would you make that kind of a decision in your heart right now? Others uh, today, it's, it's particular sin that you know you're polluted. What are you gonna do about it? Just gonna go on until next Sunday? Get it right. Take it to the cross right now. Recommit your life. Seek his help. Others know that we need to do more. We need to do more for the destitute, for the needy. Whether that's orphans, widows, or others. We need to live out our faith more in the world. And, and we know, and you know if you've done this, you know how fulfilling it is. So make a commitment to God today. The next time there's an opportunity, you're gonna, you're gonna get involved. And one other thing, there may be somebody here today that wants to give their whole life to the ministry in one way or another. I remember when that calling came in on, on me and I, I surrendered to Jesus in a time of prayer just like this, I said, yes. I'm not gonna be about going out and seeing how much money I can make. I'm not gonna follow a career path. I'm gonna, I'm gonna learn how to be a pastor. I'm gonna learn how to be a missionary. I'm gonna learn how to be a worship leader. I'm gonna, I'm gonna dedicate my life to serving Christ, not on the side, but actually as my, as my whole life. Maybe there's somebody here that's starting to feel that kind of a call. Tell, tell God yes today. Let me know about it. Father, thank you that you just continue to work in our hearts and our church. Grow us up to maturity, Lord. Again, bring with the, the be with the 27 of our of our flock that are out today and, and worshiping in, in, in the wilderness. Um, just just bless them, Lord. Thank you for all that you're doing. Continue to to work in and through Go Church. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.